Daniel chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted that Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Saul, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on, and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleating of the sheep in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Samuel said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop! I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, 
the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me, that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amal Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Lord, we are just humble in reading this story. Just seeing all the events, Lord, that took place on this day. And we ask, Lord, that during our time together now, that you allow your Holy Spirit to move freely in our hearts, to challenge us, Lord, in the ways in which that we have failed you, that we would see you as the wonderful, mighty God that you are. And Lord, as, as you have your way with us, Lord, would we rest on the grace and the kindness and the goodness, Lord, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And ultimately see your son as our only hope, not only for salvation, but Lord, even for living life now that we know Christ is our Lord and Savior. Lord, may we be strengthened and Lord, motivated to do your will because of our time this morning. I ask, Lord, that you would help me as your messenger to simply reflect your truth, Lord, that you would speak through uh, my words, Lord, to accomplish your purpose in the hearts of your people. We ask in your precious name, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. This past week, um, I think it was Wednesday, I got up in the morning and 
you know, went through the usual routine and, you know, took a shower, was getting ready for, for going into the office and um, I, I put some jeans on and put a shirt on and I was, as I was doing that, I was just kind of like smelling this weird kind of smell and, you know, we have a couple of cats, you guys know what I'm talking about and every once in a while there are these strange smells. So I was like, man, what's going on? And I looked into the, the closet where, you know, the, where we keep our clothes and stuff and the smell's in there, and, but I couldn't identify it. And then I went out in our bedroom and tried to smell over on my side of the room and the smell was even there. And then um, where, where we, just basically where the mirror and the vanity is, uh, the smell was there. And I was like, man, this is really, really strange. I mean, this is a kind of a, kind of a, a musty, kind of a gross, almost moldy kind of a weird smell. And, uh, and then my wife comes into the room and she passes me, she says, Rod, your jeans stink. <laughs> and so that day I proceeded to wear smelly, stinky jeans to work. But see, I was looking to find where the stink was coming from and did not realize that I was the one that was actually taking myself everywhere I went, and that's why I was smelling what I was smelling. Now, I I share that this morning to, to draw attention to the fact that by virtue of you and I being followers of Christ, there is something about what we hold dear, what we believe to be true, that stinks to the world around us. Now I know the word of God says that we are to be a sweet smell to those around us. And that's talking about our behavior and how we interact, all right? The kindness that we show. But what I'm drawing your attention to here is not so much our behavior, but what we believe to be true. What we believe to be true about God. And this is something that is uh, a struggle for not only unbelievers, but many professing believers, or I would say undiscerning Christians. And they have a tendency also to, to think that, that God is, is limited somehow in his character, limited somehow in the things that he does. That For example, God is a God of love and kindness and compassion, and he is, but that's not all he is. And so when we see in God's word and when believers embrace a God that is something beyond that, something that our passage screams at us today, it seems stinky to the world around us. So there's some aspects then of Christianity that smell bad to unbelievers. And there are aspects of God, about God's character, there are aspects about his word as they struggle uh, to consider uh, what he says and who he is, they are offended. Now here, here's what flows out of our text today and this is where we're gonna be landing the plane so to speak. They're offended at any discussion of God's wrath. Is God a God of wrath? Yes he is and we're gonna see that unfold in this passage. They they question the literal instructions of God to mankind that are recorded in his word, don't they? They're okay if the word of God is used somehow to comfort people. But when you take the totality of it and you see the instructions that are there and the commands that are there, that's offensive. And they see God as, as fickle 
as somewhat arbitrary, especially if, if, if we believe that God elects, if we believe that God chooses his children before the creation of the world, then God must be fickle and he must be a kind of despotic ogre. Or maybe we just are misinterpreting scripture and that's how we come to our conclusion. So, so whether we like it or not, friends, we will always confront the thinking that there is some things that really stink in our Christianity. The world will not like what God's word says because they're offended at it and they do not want to bow before him. We have to live with that. Now, of course, in the context of living in this world, we must do everything we can not to give the world an excuse for pointing the finger at us. So we need to be mindful that yes, we believe the things that we believe dearly, but we have to live our lives in a way that is gracious and compassionate, okay? Don't give people an excuse for bad behavior and bad words that would somehow give them, the might wanna say, the, the ground to stand on and say, hey, yeah, you Christians really are a bunch of hypocrites. We want to make sure we respond in a Christ-like manner. And when we sin, uh, we are an example to those around us of how you respond when you actually sin. You respond with humility. You respond by, by being honest and, and admitting that you're wrong and restoring that relationship or, or that, whatever that issue is as soon as possible and in the right way possible. But there will always be aspects about God's teaching and about God himself that will be offensive to believers. So today as we study 1 Samuel 15, we will encounter three subjects that we, that when misunderstood, are a bad smell to many. In this account, we will hear Samuel giving King Saul instructions from his word. And as we have seen, Saul will respond in character to those instructions. Nothing new, you might even say. This is par for the course. It's a sad reality, but this is Saul. And so oftentimes as we read the stories in the Old Testament, we look at the characters that are there, but there's one character that is always there that today in particular I want us to draw attention to and I want us to see this passage uh, through and that of course is the person of or the character of God himself. And in this text, um, Samuel is going to reveal God. Let's, notice verse 29 of 1 Samuel uh, 15, and also the glory of Israel, that's talking about God, will not lie, so that's an aspect of his character, will not have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. God, the glory of Israel, is not like man. I just think about this. We understand God in so many ways in human terminology, because God has condescended to us. He has revealed himself in what are called anthropomorphisms, that he expresses himself in ways that we understand. That's why he says things like, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro, but God doesn't have eyes. Or, the arm of the Lord is upon us, but God doesn't have physical arms. You just think about that. God is not like man. He doesn't lie. He doesn't 
regrets. And friends, just, just pause and think about the incarnation, how this, this God who is not like man, so far removed from man, who condescends to us and expresses himself in ways that we can understand, actually then takes upon himself the form of man. And now actually knows what it is to have an arm and to see and all those things. It's an amazing reality when you think about the incarnation in those terms. So this morning, as we, as we jump into this section, um, we want to see what I'm calling the integrity of God in the affairs of man. The integrity of God in the affairs of my, man. And, and my contention is this, that God is always totally right, just, and fair as he deals with mankind. He can be trusted. And that man is on dangerous ground when he points a guilty finger at God and then chooses to disobey him. Rather, man must face God fully and aware of his true character. And that man is accountable to God for his actions and beliefs. And of course, the character we're going to be connecting with here is Saul and Samuel, who's God's representative, but we want to see the integrity of God in this because people will look at this passage. This is one of those passages where a lot of unbelievers turn to and say, how could God do this? So the first thing we want to notice here is what I'm calling the integrity of God's wrath, the integrity of God's wrath. Let's read verse 1 through three one more time. And Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now we can understand why people reading this would struggle with this. I want you to listen to um, what Arthur Pink says about the wrath of God. He says, it is sad indeed to find so many professing Christians who appear to regard the wrath of God as something for which they need to make an apology, who at least with, uh, wish there were no such thing, while some would not go as far as to openly admit that they consider it a blemish on the divine character, yet they are far from regarding it with delight. They like not to think about it. And they rarely hear it mentioned without a secret resentment rising up in their hearts against it. Even with those who are more sober in their judgment, not a few seem to imagine that there is a severity about the divine wrath that makes it too terrifying to form a theme for profitable contemplation. Others harbor delusions that God's wrath is not consistent with his goodness and so seek to banish it from their thoughts. See, even among Christians... We are people who struggle at God's demonstration of his wrath. Friends, I want you to hear this. 
When God ex- extends his wrath, he is a God of integrity. He is fair, he is just, he is right in doing what he does in exercising his wrath. And in particular, in this section, he is right to now call on Saul with his armies and to wipe out the Amalekites. You say, wow. Let's think through this. What does this word or this expression devoted to destruction mean? It means a holy war. A jihad, if you wish. Just think about the the weight of that. They are to utterly destroy the Amalekites, to kill them, to not spare any of them. And that included men, women, children, oxen, camels, lambs, even donkeys. This is in our context, it would be dogs and cats and, I don't know, budgies and who knows. But I mean, it would, it, would, it would go down the line here of all that they have, right? But we must remember that this, this commandment here is not given in a vacuum. In other words, this is not just God some, you know, getting up one morning and saying, you know what, I don't like the Amalekites, I'm just going to wipe them off the face of the earth. There is a reason why God is giving this command, Notice what it says in verse two. I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. So the the, the story here and the background here is that Amalek did something to Egypt that God now is just in giving the punishment, even though it's years later. So what happened was Israel came out of, of Egypt and as they're in the wilderness here, while they're going uh, through the Sinai during that time of the Exodus, the Amalekites attacked them. In particular, we find in, I believe it is, Numbers 24 and 20, that they attacked them from the rear. They, they took those that were straggling, those that were kind of lagging behind in the line that was marching out of Egypt. They went and they attacked them, the weak ones, the struggling ones. And it's kind of like a, an ethic in war. If you're going to fight, put your armies together. But be careful that you're, you're not attacking those that are weak. And there's, there's something horrible here that, that God saw about their behavior. Now, I want you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 17. Deuteronomy 25 and verse 17. Because this now, this, this command to attack them or to devote them to destruction is rooted in the past. Deuteronomy 25, 17 through 19. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, aha, In other words, once you've gone in and conquered the land, after that has taken place and you find rest, then God is going to exercise his judgment. That was quite a significant amount of time. Continue reading there. You shall blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven. You shall not forget. Do you think God was serious? 
So in God's perfect timing, the day had come for his vengeance against the Amalekites to be unleashed. And Saul and his Israelite army were to be his instrument. And God righteously judges the Amalekites for their wickedness and promises that they will be dealt with accordingly. Now if you're, think, if you're thinking, that's not fair. That was generations ago. Why punish the innocent future generations for something that their ancestors did? It's a good question. And the text answers that for us. Look if you would please at verse 18. In verse 18, the Lord defines the, or identifies the Amalekites in the present tense as sinners. This is not kind of like a general, hey, we're all sinners. He's identifying them as those who are opposed to God. And then later down in verse 33, what we have here is the legacy of the war crimes against Agag, who was their king, is that he made women childless. The reason that Samuel hacked Agag to pieces was that, was that God had commanded it, yes, but also because of his own war crimes. And so they had the present character of the Amalekite people. You had the past disobedience of the Amalekite people that all justified this command to deliver them over to destruction. Now many people struggle with the wrath of God. They're horrified that God would exercise judgment on people in such a grand way. In particular, destroying the lives of what they would say are innocent people. Can I just remind you of a verse in scripture in, um, was it John 3, 18? John 3, 17, in fact turn there, John 3, 17. This, you know, we, we we're so close to John 3, 16, that's actually gonna be my text this morning at, at the funeral that I'm doing. Um, and, but just around it, there's some things that, that are so profound that help us get some perspective. So verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved. Isn't that, isn't that really nice? He didn't come in to condemn the world. Well, let's keep reading. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is what? is condemned already. In other words, man left to himself is what? Condemned. That's their condition. Deserving of ultimate wrath. So the reality is that wrath is coming whether you like it or not. But the good news is that that wrath can be averted. A lot of people talk about, you know, you Christians, you just wanna condemn everyone. We're not condemning everyone. Everyone's already condemned. It's a huge difference. Now, one commentator who struggles with God's wrath says that the Israelites who practiced this holy war had yet much to learn about the character of God, as if the character of God was, was kind of evolving here and, 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 and they, you know, he hadn't quite taken shape. And their understanding of God hadn't quite taken shape. The problem with that thinking is this. It wasn't the Israelites who said, hey, do you remember what the Amalekites did? Man, let's go get them. Let's, let's just destroy them. Is that what happened? No. It was God who said, now's the time. Saul, go, be responsible, utterly destroy 
these people. So God's character is eternal, it is unchanging, he knew what he was calling for, and he is perfectly just in doing so. Now as we look at the world today, the only arena where the church should engage in holy war is in the arena of spiritual warfare. All right, this, is, this, is, this is something we need to hear, especially with the contemporary world the way it is right now. God has not called us, he's not called a nation, any nation on this earth to exercise a holy war. Happened in the Old Testament, but that's not how God has called us to live now. The battle that we fight is a spiritual warfare that is revealed to us in Ephesians 6 where we take up the whole armor of God and we wield the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. So there's no justification for any nation whether it's Iraq, Iran, America, Russia, somewhere in Asia to claim the mantle of God's people engaged in legitimate holy war. There are only two purposes of such an all-out war in the Old Testament. Number one, defense and preservation of Israel. So there's a defensive mindset, not a conquesting mindset, but secondly, the execution of God's judgment in particular against wicked nations that had fallen under God's wrath. Now before we get lost in the idea of an angry God taking out his wrath on wicked nations, we need to be reminded about the comfort of God's wrath. In particular, the comfort on God's concerning God's wrath on those who are God's children. That God is not indifferent to the suffering of his children. I was talking with Alex in the break here and he was talking about family members um, who were put in jail because they preached the gospel. And I just thought about my suffering, how small it is in comparison to the things that Christian brothers and sisters have experienced in Ukraine and in places like Russia. Friends, we, we do not comprehend it. <laughs> but notice what it says here in verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Sorry, sorry, not verse 19. This is Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Our, our, our mode of operation when when people have abused us, when people have, have done things to us because of our belief is to say, God, you are the one who is the one that will carry out your wrath. Now friends, this verse is a comfort for all who follow Christ. Why? Because we know that God's wrath will be exercised. But we also know that God's wrath, even for those who have been abusive to the body of Christ, still have the possibility of having that wrath removed because they've embraced Christ as their Lord and Savior. And friends, there's a comfort for us as believers. We don't, we, we, we don't want a God who is indifferent to the suffering and the struggles that we face. God does not forget how his enemies have hated and trampled and, and crushed his people. To hear the following verse is good news. This is Isaiah 35 verse four. Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with recompense of God. He will come and save you. What it means is that God will put down 
and overthrow all who oppress his people. God is angry at sin and he is coming in judgment. And friends, that coming judgment will be much worse. Now friends, there's something really important for us to realize here. Is that this idea of God's judgment should not be played down. The idea of God's wrath should not be removed because it is a reality that is still a future reality. When people stand before God in that day and they are unbelievers, they will be showered with the wrath of God. It's not just like, well, we stand in line. It's like, well, you go to heaven and you go to hell. Okay, well, we'll see you. Bye. You know, have a good time. No, no, no. This is the wrath of God is poured out on those who do not believe. And that should settle in, as a weight in us. In fact, Revelation 19, Revelation 19, verse 15 says this, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Now friends, it's just important for us to know that God, in exercising his wrath, is a God of perfect integrity. And that's what's happening in the story. Saul, go utterly destroy these Amalekites. Now, isn't it interesting that in the midst of that, Saul gathers together an army, and we find in verses four through six something really interesting, and I'm calling it God's kindness. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. And Saul said to the Kenites, go depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people in Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. Now we don't have any record of that in scripture apart from this little section here. And it just reminds us that choices that we make do have implications and are remembered generations later here, both the Amalekites and the Kenites. That's the wrath of God. Now notice what I'm calling the integrity of God's word, the integrity of God's word. So upon hearing the commandment of the Lord to go and utterly destroy the Amalekites, Saul raises this large army and proceeds to defeat them. Let's pick it up at verse seven. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen and the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So immediately, the text tells us what God thinks of Saul's obedience, in quotes. Saul has turned his back from following me. Saul has not performed my commandments, God says. But the picture we get of Saul in this dialogue, in this interaction, is that he is acting and behaving like he has been successful in carrying out God's will. He sets up a monument to celebrate the victory. 
And when Samuel comes, what does he say? Verse 13, blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Now, we who are reading it are saying to ourselves, all right, Saul, you need an instruction here because you don't quite get it. And we have the privilege of having the whole story and seeing the end and all that kind of stuff, but Saul actually believes by his actions, by his words, that what he has done is be successful in following the instructions of the Lord. How is it that Saul can be so cavalier about his disobedience and call it obedience? How is it that the the sheep can be bleeding and the cows be lowing when God said that they were to be utterly destroyed? We don't understand. We don't get it. It doesn't make sense. But Saul is convinced that he has performed the commandment of the Lord. How can both be true? Are both true? Let's remember what God said here. Devote to destruction. By the way, that expression is used seven times in this passage. He also says, utterly destroy, in case you were wondering. Then he says, consume and do not spare and kill. Strong language, clear instructions. Okay? What Saul did, he kept Agag the king and he kept the best of the spoils of war. Saul is thinking, what a waste of porterhouse. What a waste of prime rib. What a waste of lamb shanks. Certainly the people can benefit from that. And all of that, I want to celebrate the capture of the king of Amalek and give God the glory. Just makes sense to celebrate the capture of the king just makes sense to not waste the spoils of war. Now we can understand that kind of thinking, can't we? It was practical. It was even spiritual. It reflects the way our present society thinks, doesn't it? A, a society that is af- uh, affected by men like um, Ralph Waldo Emerson, who famously said this, self-reliance is the greatest virtue. I call on you to live for yourself. You look around this world. Self, 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 self-reliance. What can I get for myself? How can I support myself? It is ultimately about me. And so we in the church invite that same kind of thinking when we quote words that we believe come from scriptures but do not, sayings like, God helps those who help themselves. You've heard that before, right? Sure sounds practical. It sure sounds biblical. It sure sounds spiritual, but it actually comes from Aesop in Greek mythology where a man is trying to pull his wagon out of a muddy ditch and he calls on Hercules to help to which the answer comes right God Hercules helps those who help themselves see how how easily we we bring things into our Christian thinking that is not truly rooted in scripture and Paul is is thinking in essence the following God I know what you asked me to do but but listen I, I know what's better My way is wiser than yours, God. That's why Saul seems so unfazed by the words of Samuel when he says, what then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul is just like, this just makes sense. And really, I mean, think about it. You know what? 
All the bad stuff we utterly destroyed, all the people we destroyed, we have the king. Isn't that part of our cultural norm? When you conquer an enemy, you parade the king. When we're doing that for your glory, God. Even when God comes through the mouth of Samuel again saying, hey, you are the anointed king of Israel and I have sent you on a mission. I sent you on a mission to utterly destroy the Amalekites. So why did you not obey me? Why did you pounce on the spoil? Saul responds like a whining child, doesn't he? I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission you sent me on. I have cleaned my room. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek. I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. And you're like, well, God never said to bring Amalek. Or say, bring Agag. Then, then he moves to something he's done before, and that is blame shifting and pointing the finger at the people. But the people took the spoil the sheep and the oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord, your God in Gilgal, that most spiritual of holy places. See, and what he's doing here is he's, he's, he's taking his sinful choices and he's rationalizing and justifying them and somehow making them spiritual. Somehow forcing them into the mold of this should honor God. What's your problem with it? If it weren't for those pesky people who just want to worship God in Gilgal. Doesn't this all sound familiar? Self-glory, blame-shifting, ritual religion. Saul's heart is deceived into thinking that God doesn't really mean what he says. Get that. He simply gives the command, talking about God, but he allows us to be obedient to that command on our own terms, using our own wisdom. In other words, for Saul, his behavior was justified disobedience that in his eyes, therefore, was obedience. But what does God think? Verse 22. And these are not words to be taken lightly. Begins, begins with a question. And Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? What's the implied answer there? No. Sacrifices have their places. Remember the last chapter we looked at? This is one of the things that he struggled with. He thought that somehow sacrifices, doing worship, would solve the problem, but God is not concerned with the sacrifice if there is not a heart of obedience. So it continues now with a statement of fact. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. So listening carefully to God's instructions and obeying them fully is better than any kind of ritualistic worship. Formal worship, then, cannot be substituted for an obedient life. 
In other words, you can't live in disobedience and come to formal worship and think that somehow the formal worship makes up for my disobedient life. God calls for obedience, and that obedience then fleshes out in worship, true worship. External devotion cannot be a substitute for internal submission. Going through the the, the kind of practical norms of much of Christian culture here in America does not necessarily change you. God is concerned with what's happening on the inside. And that works its way out. So for example, saying the rosary as many times as you like will not bring you closer to God. Giving large sums of money to the church or to a missionary will not remove your guilt or lack of obedience. Reciting the Apostles' Creed may be helpful, but it won't get you into heaven or place you into a higher plane with God. Going to that special conference, although it may really be good, will not necessarily automatically make you more like Christ. No, gospel change is not superficial. God is looking for change in the heart, not just in the externals. He's looking for obedience, humility, repentance, contrition. And when those things are lacking, any sacrifice we offer stinks to high heaven. And hear this, God is totally a God of integrity to expect us to be obedient to his word. Now it's driven home here by a comparison, verse 22 or 23. For rebellion is as a sin of divination and presumption or arrogance is as iniquity and idolatry. So if if God has spoken, then to be unwilling to obey him is to rebel against God. And that means your thinking and behavior are anti-God. Just, so just, just, think, just think the steps that, that God is making in, in, in what he's saying here. Your disobedience is like rebellion, and rebellion means that you are shaking your fist at God. If God has spoken, then you, sorry, then to be unwilling to obey him is an arrogance that thinks that you know better. If God has spoken, then to be disobedient is the same category as the sin of divination, iniquity, idolatry, where we replace God for something other than God. By the way, you might want to just kind of file away divination. You might want to write down chapter 28 because ultimately that will be part of Saul's unfolding pursuit in 1 Samuel that just reveals how far he has gone from God. So throughout scripture we see that biblical faith comprises both of believing his promises and obeying his commandments. You could say that belief and obedience are two sides of the same coin of a proper response to the God who has spoken. And in the New Testament, the, the, the writers there, in particular Paul, calls it the obedience of faith. And that is really the theme of the book of Romans. Begins with the obedience of faith, ends with the obedience of faith. 
We believe and we obey. We believe and we obey. Saul didn't obey because his belief was not in God. His belief was in himself. Now, I want to summarize in this section three principles that flow out of this instruction that I think are really helpful for us and I'm thankful for Richard Phillips who kind of guided me in this. But just kind of summarizing some of the thoughts here. Three principles that the original readers would need to learn and three principles that that we, the contemporary reader, need to take seriously. Here's the first one. Obedience to God means that we keep his actual commands. Not sort of around his commands, but his actual commands. If God actually says something, he meant what he actually said. So you shall honor your father and mother, well, unless they don't like your behavior or have had to discipline you for your behavior, right? The Bible says, you shall not murder unless it is a defenseless unborn child that you don't want because he or she will be an inconvenience to you. You should not commit adultery unless, of course, your marriage is suffering and you want to find some happiness somewhere. And we know that God wants everyone to be happy. I shall not steal means don't steal. I shall not bear false witness. Tell the truth about what you saw. Thou shalt not covet. Be satisfied with what God has given you in life, unless, of course, you want to impress those around you. In other words, these commandments, just from some of the Ten Commandments, as well as all the commandments and statements in God's word, are there specifically written and recorded to be actually believed and obeyed. So the point is that God actually means what he says in his word. And his commands actually mean what they say they are. But see, the the world, the unbeliever doesn't like that. In fact, many believers, in quotes, don't like that. Because they still want to do what they want to do. And if God somehow says, that is not something that honors me, they kind of shake their fist at God and they find some way to rationalize it away and say, yeah, but I'm just doing this and, and I, really wanna, I really wanna worship you. They paint it in a way that makes it seem in their mind to be actually being obedient to that command. I think about the instructions God gave to Noah. He says, build an ark. Now he was given some specific dimensions, length, breadth, width, some specific materials, gopher wood, some specific inhabitants, animals, two by two. Now can you imagine if Noah was cavalier about God's instructions and decided to change the materials to suit his wishes? You know, I'm, I'm gonna use some gopher wood, but the rest of it I'm going to make with eucalyptus wood. There's more of it around. Have you ever tried to work with eucalyptus? You know, it was grown 
especially in our state, thinking it could be great for lumber because it grows so fast, but it's so oily that you build anything, but it goes whoosh. <laughs> the point is there's a reason why God chose to use that particular wood, and so that's what Noah was supposed to do. Or he decided maybe to tweak the ark by adding another 10 cubits to the length to supersize the ark, right? And, and, and you engineers out there, if you can figure this out, adding another 10 cubits may actually affect the ark because God had specific parameters for its construction. And when you change something like that, it's no small thing. Or because maybe Noah wasn't sure that God's plan would work, so he brought four of every creature instead. And the boat sank when the rains came. No, we read the following about Noah. It says, Noah did all God commanded him. God gave instructions, specific instructions. And he built that ark according to those dimensions. And he put the animals on there like God said. And he did it the way God had commanded him. Friends, that's what God is calling us to do. And sometimes those commandments are confusing. We don't understand why, but we do it. And that leads us to the second thing. Obedience to God requires actions that, are, that others might consider unpopular. Look at what Saul says in verse 15. Saul said, they have brought from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen, the sacrifice uh, to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Now notice the progression here. When Saul is talking about his disobedience, he says, they brought them, the people spared the best of the livestock. When Saul is pointing to his obedience, he says, we. Now we would want a leader to step up to the plate and, and, and do something maybe like lead, wouldn't we? It would be nice if Israel actually had a leader that was willing to lead, to listen to God's voice, to listen to the prophet when he's representing God, to do what he's called to do. Is that really too much to ask? Is that really that far-fetched? But that is what the biblical leadership does, it fights to be obedient to God no matter how unpopular the obedience might be. Now friends, this is not panic mode at all, but, but our, our, our culture is quickly moving in a direction where Christians are considered to be not only weird, but offensive. And we are gonna be in a place where not only churches are gonna to have to say, this is what God's word says, and the world might throw eggs, they might, they might pick it in front of the doors, that kind of stuff could happen. And it may also filter down to personal interactions that people have with you, simply because you hold to a truth in God's word that is clear, but society is gonna say, oh, that's not really what it says. Doesn't God want people to be happy? Doesn't he want them just to enjoy life? Why put those restrictions on them? And there'll be plenty of churches out there who will have pastors and leaders that will be saying the same thing as the world. And the true 
community of God will feel like they have to kind of turn inside and, and hold on to one another and rethink what the church is really all about. Maybe all the frill, all the excess that we have allowed to happen in our country will be pushed aside. The dross will be removed and the central themes of what it means to be God's church will be in place. It may not be a bad thing for the church, friends. But don't be afraid if, if this kind of gets, gets moving. The, 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 the snowball is, is starting to roll down the hill. That's at least how I'm seeing it. The Bible warns of a time when people will have itching ears, wanting the preachers and teachers of their day to satisfy their sinful and self-serving itch. And when those teachers capitulate to those demands, because they are popular, the reality is we've already turned away from the truth. So God's leaders, whether they be patriarchs, judges, priests, kings, pastors, elders, or deacons, must be committed to unpopular obedience. Doesn't that make you want to stand up and say, yes. No, it's daunting, isn't it? But it glorifies God. And there's a way that we need to do that and we need to really work on what that looks like. Number three, obedience is the only thing that truly pleases God. And when I say obedience there, I don't mean just rote obedience that is not heart obedience. No, obedience that comes out of the heart is the only thing that pleases God. So like Saul, you and I might attempt to justify our actions and, and tell God that our intentions in our disobedience were well intended, but God is looking for those who worship him in full obedience. God is only worshiped rightly when he is obeyed completely. God is only worshiped rightly when he is obeyed completely. So the bottom line in asking the question of obedience is this. Is God right? Or is Saul right? So we've considered the integrity of God's wrath. The world doesn't like it. But it is a comfort to those who are God's children. We've considered the integrity of God's word and much of the world doesn't like it because it's too black and white and it confronts them, it confronts them with their sin. But it is right, it is to be obeyed. And it is a wonderful balm to the soul. And now we want to see the integrity of what I'm calling God's wisdom, God's wisdom. God is wise. He knows what he's doing. And when he chooses, those choices sometimes, from our perspective, seem to go against the grain of what we think is right. And so there's two words that resonate from this story that are troublesome to many. And the other words, regret and reject. Regret and reject. You'll find the word regret used in verse 11 and verse 29 and verse 35. And this is regret about Saul. 
that is spoken in two of those verses. Verse 11, I regret that I made Saul king. This is God speaking through Samuel. And then verse 35, this, this last summary statement of the whole passage, and Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Now we must ask, are we to believe that somehow God was taken by surprise when he made Saul king? Isn't God the sovereign ruler of the universe who presides over his ongoing providence over the affairs of man? Yes. So how is it that God can regret? Or as some translations say, repent. Is God now sitting in the support group of time, finally admitting that he made a mistake? And there are many people that will point to this passage and say, see, God is inconsistent here. He's fickle. He changes his mind. It didn't work out with Saul, so he has to go with plan B. I'll tell you something, there is no plan B with God. This is all part of God's unfolding providence. And hear this, God's providence works through our lives and he works through our sin and he works through the ungodly and he works his plan in ways that we would love to be streamlined and clean, but that's not how God works. So what are we to make of all this? Sometimes God uses language to help us understand him and relate to him in an understanding way. We've already talked about his use of what is called anthropomorphisms, right? The right hand of the Most High and the eyes of the Lord running to and fro over the earth. But here, this idea of regret is called an anthropopathism, if you want to learn a new word, an anthropopathism. I don't have it up there, so I can't spell it for you. Anthropopathism where he is described by attributing to himself human feelings, right? Anthropomorphism is saying God is describing himself by using human body parts, I'm going to say, okay? This one is talking about God is describing himself and helping us understand a little bit about himself by using human feelings. So God gets angry, but his anger is nothing like human anger, right? He, he feels sorrow, but his sorrow is not like human sorrow. He, he is grieved. He loves, but his love is nothing like human love. Here it is regret, and it truly grieves God that Samuel, or I should say that Saul, refuses to be one of his disciples. It grieves him. And he is regretting. He's sorrowful at what has taken place in Saul's Life, and it gives us a picture, it gives us an understanding about God. God is not some ogre that's saying, well, if you're a, if you're a follower of mine, then you're ushered into heaven, but all you people who are unbelievers, you know, I don't care about you, I'm cold to you. No, God is pained with unbelief. He struggles with unbelief in that sense. So the idea of God's regret doesn't intend to suggest that God is fickle in the affairs of man because of man's sin, or that 
God is somehow cold and heartless in that fickleness. No, God cares about his children. And it truly grieves him when they are rebellious or wander away after their own pursuits. Now we need to let the text of scripture teach us here. Notice verse 29. This is the other section. We looked at it a little bit already. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. For he is not a man that he should have regret. In other words, we can't think of God in terms of he is just like a man. He is God. And God doesn't change. God doesn't repent. He doesn't just kind of like one day say, oh, I got it all wrong. What am I going to do? I guess I'll have to do this now. No, God doesn't do that. But he can have sorrow because of how people live and behave. So he's saying here, this God is not a man that he should have regret. This is a paradox. So God regrets, verses 11 and 35. That's where he feels deeply about the choices of man. And then God will not regret, verse 29. He is not fickle. He's not arbitrary. Dale Davis says it this way. He kind of summarizes this. The paradox tends to split our minds. But a little thought tells us that this God who both regrets and does not regret is the only God we can serve Only in the consistent God of verse 29 and in the sorrowful God of verse 35 do we find the God worthy of praise. Here is a God who is neither fickle in his ways nor indifferent in his responses. Here is a God who has both firmness and feeling. If we cannot comprehend, we can perhaps apprehend at least enough to adore. So God's providence moves through much of sinfulness that truly breaks God's heart. Yet it is still his glorious providence. Now take the well-known story of Joseph. and I'm sure that most of us in here are very familiar with the story of Joseph. His brothers, because of Joseph's elevation, he's one of the younger brothers elevated because he's the firstborn to Rachel, and he's treated and he's favored by his father. The brothers are offended by that, especially the fact that he has these dreams that he can interpret. They take him, they sell him into slavery, they pretend that he uh, was killed by an animal. He's sold into slavery. The people that, that get him get to Egypt. They sell him into Potiphar's household, and while he is there, he just, he, he just um, is a great example of what it means to be a steward, and he, he's raised in that home to have total control over the affairs of the household. And then Potiphar's wife, day after day, you know, says, I, I, I want him, and so she pursues him, and, 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 and he's constantly refusing. And finally she grabs his garment as he runs away to flee from her, her approaches, and then she falsely accuses him of approaching her, and so as a result, Joseph is thrown now into jail. And while he's in jail, guess what happens? He uses his gifts, he uses his, his talent, he is godly, and, and God raises him even in the context of jail. So that when a problem comes with a, the, 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 is it the baker and the cupbearer, um, they, 
they both have dreams and he's able to interpret those dreams and as a result, he goes now to, uh, to, um, to Pharaoh because the, the cupbearer lives and the baker dies, I think is the way it goes and then the cupbearer reminds or tells Pharaoh about this man who was in jail. So all this time, all this suffering, all this struggle, all the sin that was done against him is all taking place. And then the brothers come and there's all this, this struggle and torment that was going on in their hearts because there's a famine in the land. And ultimately, as they are gathered together, you know, Joseph is with his brothers and he has that famous statement and he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. This is God's glorious providence that works through the sinfulness of man to accomplish his purposes. And so even though Saul was a failure, even though Saul rebelled against God, not only did God regret and sorrow Saul's response, but he also has another plan, not plan B, plan A, already in motion in the story for us. There's regret. Now there's also rejection. Rejection. Let's just think about this. Verse 23, verse 26, and verse 28 all talk about this rejection. Ultimately, the people's king rationalizes and dis, uh, his disobedience and blames the people for taking the best of the spoils. He is the archetypal self-made man. In other words, he is, the, he, he is a representation of self-made man in that he listens to God's word and reshapes it to fit his idea of what is right. And this happens, we've seen it in the arena of politics when in a speech a president, a senator, a representative seeks to either sympathize with or to scold the broader Christian community by quoting a verse of scripture but wrenching it out of its context and trying to make it say what they want it to say rather than what it actually says. And then this also happens in, in the media. Oftentimes when, if you're watching a TV show or a movie or something like that and someone quotes a verse of scripture, it's not usually what scripture is actually saying, is it? It's usually a distortion. You know? You're usually gonna come up with, you know, and the truth will set you free. Yeah, well the truth you're talking about is not the truth that scripture was talking about. But people love, and, and culture loves to, to use God's word if it's gonna benefit them. They're okay with that. God's word, if it's a helpful quote to prove my point or to, to justify my living, that's okay. But not to take it at face value. So mankind is not offended at God's word if they have the freedom to tweak it how they like. And Saul is guilty of the same thing. God had clearly given Saul his word, but Saul sought to adjust its meaning. And when man does that, there are consequences. And there were dire consequences for Saul. He is rejected. Verse 23, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Just ponder that. The implication here for us is that it's not just Saul that can reject the word of the Lord, right? We also are responsible to
to embrace the word of the Lord. So Saul appears to repent in this story, but it becomes clear that Saul isn't really interested in restoring his relationship with God. He's more concerned with keeping his image in front of the people. And so if you go back to the instructions of the king, you don't have to turn there, but in 1 Samuel 12, verse 14 and following, this is what we read, and just hear how this relates to this passage. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Saul understood, Saul knew the implications of either obeying or disobeying the voice of the Lord. And he didn't pay attention to God's voice. He paid attention to his own voice and the voice of the people. And so quickly here, there is a refusal that takes place. Samuel refuses to return with Saul and and to give him, uh, he gives him this reason why. I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Here it is again. But this time Saul in desperation grabs the skirt of Samuel's robe and he tears it and Samuel says, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and he has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Now friends, there is a consequence for all of us when we willfully and deliberately stiff arm God's word in our lives. There is a consequence when you or I willfully and deliberately stiff arm God's word in our lives. Anyone who has been in ministry for even a short time has encountered situations in which individuals have disobeyed the Lord and through that disobedient decision have made a turn in their lives that cannot be reversed. Oh, certainly there can be repentance, but The plans are already out there. The effect has taken place. You can't undo it. And any preacher, and I'm speaking for myself, having been in that context, or a teacher, and some of you are that, can tell stories of students who married against the advice of those who counseled them otherwise, who didn't find, or didn't finish school because they had peace about doing some other project, or who chose wrong companions thinking that they were strong enough to sustain their witness among them, but these decisions often lead to a detour from which that individual rarely recovers fully. Sadly, they may never return to a path of living wholeheartedly for God. Even if there is repentance, grace does not eliminate the scars of their disobedience or to restore the blessing that was originally intended. So Paul pleads again with Samuel, please honor me before the people. Now notice though in verse 30, there are two ways that really, two words that betray his heart. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord, 
your God, my people, my Israel, your God. A little nuances here, friends. Saul's apparent repentance, Saul's apparent restoration really is self-serving. Now we don't know why Samuel relented and turned back with Saul, but do remember this relationship. Saul had been on this journey with Saul, Samuel had been on this journey with Saul since the beginning and it's clear that his anger in verse 11 was deeply felt. In verse 35, we're also told that Samuel grieved over Saul, so maybe his compassion for pitiful Saul won the day. We don't know, the text doesn't say, but those attitudes we can understand. What we do know is that Samuel had to clean up Saul's unfinished business. The prophet of God in the place of the failed king had to carry out God's judgment on Agag. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Now these last, I should say, yeah, these last two verses really are, 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 are a cold finish, are they not? And Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul, and Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Let me finish with just two brief thoughts. Number one, just relating to God's wrath. Do we really believe in God's future wrath? This is a weighty text, isn't it? I mean, the issues here are, are serious. But do we really believe in God's future wrath? Are we fully aware that the the difficult sections of God's word reveal God's wrath against sinful and rebellious mankind are just a foreshadowing of the judgment that all who refuse to put their trust in God will experience? God's judgment and wrath then is a picture of God's judgment and wrath in the future. So feel the weight of that reality when you consider your salvation. You have been saved from the wrath to come. You talk about, I am saved. What does that mean? Saved from God's wrath. Feel the weight of that reality when you consider those who are lost. They are destined because they're already condemned for the wrath that is real, the judgment that is real. And without God's help, man is left to stand alone, helpless and naked. And he will suffer under God's mighty wrath. But then, there's hope. Did you catch the glimmer of hope in this passage? Look at verse 28. We kind of breezed over it. It will begin our study of chapter 16. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. 
How is he better than him in stature? No, he was a shrimp. Um, how is he better? Oh, he would be a man after God's own heart. What does that mean? Does it mean his, that David would be...